We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 9. We shall read from verse 12. Revelation chapter 9 from verse 12. One woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand, and I heard the number of them. And thus... I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire, and of jaconet, and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions. And out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke, and by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouths, and in their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents, and at heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils, and idols of gold and silver, and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. May God bless again this reading of his holy word. We continue then to consider further these plagues, these divinely ordained and divinely ordered afflictions sent upon the sons of men. We must keep before us uh, where all this is coming from, all these various happenings and these events. Uh, We go back to trace the source as the throne in the chapter 4 that John's attention was drawn to. I saw a throne, he says, and all these happenings are because of the one who exercises his absolute sovereign authority from that throne. It is important, perhaps, that we go back and just remind ourselves of what this book is all about and exactly who it is directed to. When John in the Isle of Patmos tells us how he was in the Spirit in the Lord's day, 
in the opening chapter, he says he heard a voice as of a great trumpet in verse 10. And then in verse 11, he says the voice instructed him, I am Alpha and Omega. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end and everything in between. There is nothing before me, there is nothing beyond me. I am the first word, I am the final word. Now he says, what thou seest. And we proceed through the book and have been looking at some of the things that he saw. And he wasn't seeing them merely for his own benefit or to be personally intrigued by them. But there was a divine purpose behind all these visions. John is told, write a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Now it is fascinating to me that you get so many books and pamphlets and publications all about the seven churches in Asia. Messages to the seven churches in Asia. End of story. We forget all about everything else that here is to be sent to the churches in Asia. Not just seven messages to the angels of the seven churches. But John is told, everything you're going to see is important to those churches. Everything you see has significance to those churches in Asia, so you better write it to them. He identifies the churches, as we've already seen, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos, and so on. Now, as we said, there were certainly many more than seven churches in Asia, but they are identified as the churches in Asia. They are the churches of the Gentile world. Not just the church in Jerusalem now, but the church that is expanded into the Gentile world. And obviously there are congregations established, witnesses well established here and there in the Gentile world of John's time. And John is directed, you write what you see to the seven churches. You may not be able to explain everything to the seven churches, but you will write nevertheless and inform them. This is information that the churches stand in need of in their time of trial and persecution. Now we must not forget that. This book is directed very particularly to the expanded Gentile church, the church 
that it has expanded in the providence of God under the ministry of the apostles and, of course, their associates. But although that is the case, we are told in the introduction, verse 3 of chapter 1, blessed is he that readeth. Doesn't matter who he is. He may not even belong to any of these seven churches. He may be in some other part of the world. He may be Jew, he may be Gentile, he may be Greek, he may be Roman, whatever. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand, so that this uh, book that John is to write and then send it to the seven churches is a book that has a universal significance. We are directed uh, by implication to seek the blessing that is contained in the reading of this book and of the keeping of the things which are written therein. Not just remembering them, but keeping them in practice. Keeping the teaching, keeping the lessons, keeping the application in our own experience. That's the purpose for which this book is actually written. So none of us can say, I can ignore it. It is extremely sad that so many will write on the first chapters of the book to the seven churches and then the rest doesn't matter. It was all to be directed to the seven churches in Asia. Now then, when we come as far as we've come to chapter 9, we keep in mind, I trust, what we originally said uh, by way of explanation because of the various visions that might appear to be disconnected. They are absolutely all, as it were, one message. They are all interconnected, conveying one message from God himself, from the throne of of God and of the Lamb. Now we said, as it often was the case, perhaps more in the past, When an author would compose a book, he would write a summary. And you would read through the summary and you would know then what to expect as you would read the chapter following. That is one way of looking here at the various visions. But we are reminded of the practice in the church at the time of John. You have the four Gospels, for example, 
neither not talking or, or writing or recording or narrating the events and the life of all kinds of individuals. The gospel is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we might think, well, would one gospel not be sufficient? Could Matthew not write everything we need to know? Could John not compose a gospel that would be complete and would not need any other writings uh, at all? We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all narrating the gospel and the center, the heart of the gospel, the life of Christ himself. Yet, when we read the four gospels, we get the full, complete picture of who Jesus is, what his mission was, what his ministry was like, and the purpose of it, and so on. We have Matthew's angle on it. We have Mark's view of it. We have Luke's interpretation. And we have John's revelation regarding the deity of Christ in the fourth gospel. When we read, for example, Mark's gospel... We can then go to Matthew's gospel or Luke or John and we can compare how they refer to a particular event and then we learn and we get a fuller picture. When we come to the revelation, this is what John sees. He sees the events of history unfolded in one vision. And then he is taken in another vision to view from another angle. And then again he's taken to see a new picture, a new vision of what God has been doing and continues to do. And so when we come to, for example, chapter 9, we keep that in mind. We have the chapter, as it were, divided into two. We've already looked at the both parts, but we return particularly to the latter part of the chapter 9. We have the seven angels that stand before the throne of God. These who are awaiting their instructions to go forth and remember they serve all that... Church of Jesus Christ, we must keep that ever in mind, no matter what they do, and no matter how it may appear to us, they are always engaged in the work that the Apostle tells us they were sent forth to do. They are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. They are doing it on behalf of Christ's church. They are doing it for the sake of his people. If they are sent forth to administer judgment, to bring severe afflictions and plagues into the experience of men, 
Why are they doing it? They are ministering spirits sent forth, sent from the throne, sent from the glorified Christ, sent forth on behalf of them that are the people of God. And this is what's happening here in chapter 9. But as we've noted, the events of the latter part of the chapter follow the voice that speaks from the four horns of the golden altar. The blood that was sprinkled under the law upon the four horns. The blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel's. This is the blood, not of the martyrs now, so much as we've seen in the past, crying from under the altar. But this is the blood that speaks from the very horns of the altar, crying because it is being trampled upon and because it is being despised. And the voice, what does it say? Saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet. Now, note the connection. This verse 13, the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns. Now, we might think, wouldn't we expect to hear a voice from the throne itself? But it says here, it was a voice from the four horns. But we cannot disconnect the two. And the voice from the four horns of the altar is the same voice of him who now occupies the throne. John will see in his visions the throne occupied by God and the Lamb. And when he sees the Lamb, how is he described as the Lamb that had been slain? He still bears the evidence of his atoning death. And so, therefore, the voice of the blood calling from the horns is the same voice that issues forth from the throne. What does this voice say? Loose the four angels. Liberate them, free them, who have been bound. As we said, these have to be fallen angels because they're bound. But now what does the voice say? Remove all the restraints. Let them loose. Let them act now. Let them act according to their natures. Let them act according to their purposes. Let them act now in the way that they would if they were not restrained. The divine restraint is taken and removed. In the same way that earlier in the chapter the restraints are removed, the key opens the bottomless pit, and now... 
that the bottomless pit is opened, come out of the bottomless pit, this great plague of locusts. And uh, the restraints, the restraints on satanic power and satanic activity are removed. Here again, they are further removed. What's the result? We have John describing what he sees. Now, we may well ask, well, what would John understand of what he was seeing? If he writes about what he sees to the seven churches in Asia, how are they going to know what he's talking about? How are they going to understand? Because John doesn't explain very much of what their identity really is. He tells us about the impact of their activities, the devastating impact upon men. Men suffer because of what takes place. But why would John write then to the seven churches about these events? We must understand among the fathers, the early fathers of the church, they reckoned that by the year 60 AD, there would have been approximately 100,000 Greek or Gentile Christians or believers to everyone Jewish believer. Now you think of that, 100,000 to one. And this is an indication of just how far the gospel has spread, how extensive now is the influence of the New Testament church. Here we have seven churches in Asia. We've looked at the spiritual condition of them, indicating to us the general spiritual state of the church at that time, mainly consisting mainly of Greeks and Gentile believers out of Ephesus and Smyrna. And Philadelphia, these heathen cities. But because they were the churches, they possessed something, they possessed the truth of God. Like the Bereans, they would be under an obligation to search the scriptures. Now, what scriptures did they have? The scriptures of the Old Testament. John was familiar with the scriptures of the Old Testament. So much so that it wasn't even necessary for him to give explanations to many of the things that he sees. 
because all he had to do was resort back to the Old Testament and all the churches had to do was take out the scrolls of the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, the law, whatever, and read. What would they find? They would find that God is extremely consistent. That is something we've forgotten. God is absolutely consistent. And he responds to particular attitudes among men in a consistent fashion, in a consistent manner. That is part of the reason we read, as we did from the minor prophets, from the prophecy of Joel, there in the first two chapters of Joel, you have God's threatenings of punishments to his ancient people because of their backslidings, because of their idolatry, because of their heathen practices. Now in the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, Peter tells us something. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter was preaching and 3,000 were converted, men were mystified as to what was taking place. And they said, well, these men must be full of new wine. That they can talk the way they do, speak in different languages that we can understand what's going on. What did Peter tell them? This is the fulfillment of what was written by the prophet Joel. So, when we turn back to the prophecy of Joel, in the very chapter 2 that we read from, what do we read? Verse 28. It shall come to pass afterward. We cannot afford to leave words out of Scripture. They're all important. It shall come to pass when? Afterward. That I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and so on. And that's what Peter quotes. And he says, what you're seeing is the fulfillment of this very prophecy. Now, when we go back then to read what Joel says, we learn the context we discover the real context out of which these words come. And what do we read? Without We haven't time to go down through the various parts of these chapters, but notice 
verse 1 of chapter 2. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion. What is John seeing? The angels blowing the trumpets. So he wasn't surprised, he wasn't shocked, he wasn't thinking, well, this is strange. No idea what the significance is. Never heard of such a thing in my life. He knew perfectly well what the significance of the blowing of the trumpet was. It was to herald forth and herald in to the lives of men experiences that were directed by God. Why is the trumpet to be blown? Let the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. And you can go down through these two chapters and see the fearful judgments that God was sending from these great nations, Assyria and Babylon and uh, the the, uh, Medes and the Persians, these great armies, and uh, they were God's armies. Verse 11 of chapter 2, The Lord shall utter his voice before his army. He shall utter his voice before his army. For his camp is very great. God has gone out with his armies, his great army, with devastating power. And men have experienced it. But where is the trumpet blown? Blow the trumpet in Zion. Not out among the heathen nations, but blow the trumpet in Zion. The Lord's covenant community, the church of the Old Testament, warn them what is coming upon them. Judgments because of their sin. We're told uh, that uh, the army that is referred to in verse 8 is going to produce, verse 2 of chapter 2, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, and so on. Verse 3, A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. What's John thinking as he's seeing what's happening in chapter 9? Whenever he uh, sees... Uh, the number of the horsemen who were 200,000, 200,000 million, as it properly is. Uh, the number seems uh, so inexplicable, but John says that's the number that I heard. It was explained to me. And then... He speaks of their, verse 19, their power is in their mouth, these horses, and in their tails, for their tails were like serpents and so on, similar to the locusts who could cause hurt 
from before and behind. Do you think John didn't understand? He would come to one conclusion. The God who dealt so severely with the church of old is being absolutely consistent. He is now dealing and threatening to deal with the New Testament church in exactly the same way. The seven churches, when we read of their state and condition, what do you see? The seeds of error and the seeds of corruption are already growing. They are already germinating and growing to produce terrible fruit in those churches. So much so that you have the head of the church repeatedly saying, Repent, repent, repent. Repent of the sins in your midst. Just as the church in Israel and Judah were required to repent of their idolatry and their backsliding and their heathen customs and practices, and I punished them when they refused to repent, so likewise, God is punishing the sins of the universal church that has now expanded beyond one little nation. God is being consistent. My dear friends, do you believe that? Do you believe that we're worshipping a God who's consistent? Do you believe today that a consistent God never changes his attitude to sin in the church at any time in history? Do you believe, do you believe that God is consistent in the way he will punish sin in the church at any point in history. Do we believe that the sins of the professing church have any impact upon God's actions? This is what John is seeing uh, God working in the chapter 1 of uh, Joel, uh, we have the great plague of the uh, the grasshoppers, and the uh, we have the plagues that destroy uh, the trees and the grass, uh, do damage in every direction, and the locusts destroying everything before them. Why is God doing this? Verse 12 of chapter 2. This is why he's doing it. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart 
and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. Why did God send these fearful plagues why did God gather this great army of, ad, of adversity to come and enter the land of his ancient people with such devastating power? Why did he do it? To bring them to repentance. And when... We come to verse 28 of chapter 2 in Joel, the passage that Peter refers to in quotes. Don't you imagine if you had been standing there listening to Peter and you hear him quote that, what are you going to do? Well, you'll open up your Bible and you'll get Joel's prophecy. Are you telling us the truth, Peter? And then you read, well, Peter, you are telling us the truth. But when you're telling us the truth as to the purpose and the decree of God, we also read of all that has taken place prior to this. And obviously then, Peter, we're to understand what's happening today as a revival, a reformation, God returning in mercy, because he says, verse 15 of chapter 2 in Joel, blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. Sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast. Why on earth would God say that, do you think? Why would they need to be there? Little children, little infants, what do they know about what's going on? You say to them when they get 10 years of age, 12 years of age, do you remember the day, the great assembly, You remember the old men that were weeping. You remember the solemn words that came from the prophet. No, we were too young. We didn't hear anything or understand anything. We didn't know what they were talking about. We had no idea what was going on. But God required it. And God said, you'll assemble them all because of my covenant relationship. Because I promised to be a God unto you and to your seed. And you will assemble your seed because I have an eternity past made a covenant with them. 
I don't know why people take God's word and then they try to twist it and they try to distort it because they've got their nice little neat theological system and they must somehow or other squeeze whatever God says somewhere into that system. As you all well know, I'm a Presbyterian. I I am Reformed, but I do not like to be pressed into any pigeonhole or any theological pigeonhole of any system. I believe that I, I want to be free to declare what God's Word says. And here we have God dealing with his people most severely to bring them to repentance. Now when we come to Revelation 9, right to the seven churches in Asia, there's no need now to blow the trumpet in Zion. There are seven trumpets now being sounded. There are warnings being given. And when the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, said, loose the four angels, uh, the voice from the uh, altar, rather, the horns of the altar, said to the sixth angel that had the trumpet, now release these seven evil angels. Let them free to do their work. And what are they to do? They are sent out to torment men. Like the locusts before, we see these strange characters, these unusual locusts. They are not like Natural, ordinary locusts, they are perversions. Likewise, here in the latter part of the chapter, we have further satanic perversions. The spirits of perversion are now thrust out into the race of men, out into the society of men. So that now we have three specific categories among men. Remember what we have? The sealed. The servants of the Lord that were sealed to be protected. Then you have the unsealed. Those who are not serving God. It's interesting, you go back to the Old Testament, to the last book of the Bible, Malachi, and there you hear, we read of those who in their dark day thought much upon the Lord. Verse 16 of Malachi 3, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and thought upon his name. And what does God say? Verse 17, They shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. 
they shall be mine. When in the day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. What's God saying? That there would come the time when there would be a clear distinction, a discernible, clear distinction between those who honestly, genuinely served God and those who didn't. They may have claimed to serve God. They may have pretended to serve God. They may have belonged to the covenant community, but they were in rebellion and they were disobeying God. But here's what God says. The day when I make up my jewels for my crown, I will acknowledge those who truly feared me. And it will be seen clearly who my servants really were. When we come to the book of the Revelation, what do we have? The marking, the sealing of the servants of the Lord. No action is permitted until they are securely sealed. Now we might think to ourselves, well surely... If there are seven churches in Asia, why couldn't the angel go to the seven churches in Asia and simply mark all, seal all the, all the people assembled in the churches? And the angel couldn't do that because there was chaff among the wheat in the seven churches. But the angel is sent to seal the true servants of God. Those who were real. Those who were genuine. So you have then the sealed and you have the unsealed. Only two categories. They were either sealed as the servants of God or they're unsealed as rebels against God. That's the makeup of human society. I know in our day of confusion, we hardly know today who's supposed to be a Christian or what Christianity is really all about. Who is genuine? Who is false? Who is truly a child of God and who is nothing but a pretend Christian? And that's why the angel is sent. It's not left to men. John isn't directed. Write a message to the seven churches and tell them to prepare for persecution. Tell them all to get ready. The Lord knoweth them that are his. So he sends an angel, mark them all. For the day of judgment is coming. Then now into this human society. 
comes this third category with the most evil intentions. God has been, as it were, sending out a warning in the previous part of the chapter 9. These locusts, this plagues. And they hurt men and they introduce affliction to men. But then in verse 12, one woe is past. It's going to get worse. Behold, there come two woes more hereafter. God has not finished yet. What did Joel write of God's great army and the greatness of his camp? And God is not short of means or methods to fulfill his will in punishing sin. And in this chapter (coughs) 9 then, what do we read? Verse 17. I saw the horses in the vision and them that sat in them having breastplates of fire and of jackness and brimstone. The heads of the horses were as the heads of lions. These strange creatures, they do not depict what came from the hand of God, do they? They're not the kind of creatures that Adam was able to identify and give them names. These are strange, satanic embodiments of evil. And uh, you can see how they inflict terrible punishments upon men. Their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. Now, I know that there are all kinds of interpretations from Hitler's tanks to Russian warheads. One wonders... What they will do very shortly for the scientists are predicting that it is inevitable that there will soon be war in the heavens as the superpowers compete for space for their satellites and their satellite stations and they will be competing, and they will be claiming, this is our space, take your satellites somewhere else, and then you imagine what a war in heaven would produce. Just think of what would happen here on earth. What John is talking about is this, God's power that knows no limit, God releasing at his will these powers of darkness. He holds them in captivity. They are bound. They are fettered. 
They cannot do as they like. They cannot come into human society and uh, destroy uh, uh, as they wish. They are nevertheless here released. God is releasing into human society satanic power and satanic influences by which men are to be pained and by which they are to suffer. Now, what is the purpose of it? The exact same purpose as Joel tells us God sent the plagues in the past for to bring men to repentance. What are we told? Verse 20, the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not. They refused to repent. They are suffering. They are pained. They are afflicted. But they repented not of the works of their hands. They repented not of their own self-confidence. That's the reality of it. No matter what God does, they still maintain their own self-confidence. We can cope, we can manage, we can handle these situations. They repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship what? Devils. You see what's happening here? It is the very objects of their worship that are inflicting upon them these fearful punishments. Now you just look at what John records. Worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders. Neither repented they of their murders. Think of the world we're living in just now. The millions of murders of the unborn children. Government after government after government in the nations that the gospel was sent to. Australia, did it never have the gospel? New Zealand, did it never have the gospel? UK, did it never have the gospel? America, In spite of all the gospel privileges, what is the present generation doing? We will not repent, but we will legalize. We will murder and continue to murder. Does God stand back and say, get on with it? No, no. He sends plagues upon men, satanic plagues out of darkness, but nor for their sorceries. What's the word that is used? Pharmaca. 
It is the word, well, it's rudus formicus, from which we have in our English language the very word pharmacy. What did John understand of the pharmacy or the pharmacist? He was a druggist, but no ordinary druggist. Their sorceries, wizardry, witchcraft, and drugs mixed up, drugs supplied, Drugs with magic potions from the sorcerer. Do I need to explain anything any further? What is one of the great plagues of Australia? What is one of the destroying plagues in the United Kingdom and in Europe and in America? The impossibility of containing the drug culture and the youth destroying themselves. Where does it come from? It's a God-sent plague. They repented not of their sorceries. They see, they witness, they experience the pain, the anguish, the ruin. But will they repent? Of course not. Governments can legislate. We're not going to forbid it. Oh, we can't stop it. This is a culture where everyone's free to enjoy themselves. Therefore, the social life It's very important, and you can't have a social life without drugs. This is the society that John was seeing in the vision. He says, write these things to them churches, because the seeds of error are already germinating. And the church is already beginning to suffer and lose its impact. And God is going to deal with it just in the same way as he's always done in the past. God is going to be consistent. It seems to me that we don't believe the Bible anymore. We simply don't believe God himself anymore. We look at society and we all groan. Poor society. And God is ignored. And he sends plague upon plague. He unleashes satanic influences right into human society. And let's not pretend it doesn't reach into the professing church. It is incredible. It is increasing at a fearful rate. Breakup of marriages 
in churches, pastors with second, third, fourth wives, elders having an affair with another elder's wife or a Sabbath school teacher or whatever. The church is rotten, riddled through with all these practices. Where do we have them originating from? The powerful satanic forces that God has released into human society to punish sin. We don't seem to be willing to accept it. We know we're like in the days of Malachi, wherein have we grieved God? Wherein have we not obeyed God? wherein have we offended God? That's what they were saying. And that's what the church is doing. We haven't offended God. We haven't done anything wrong. We're not guilty of doing anything amiss. They repented not. God is calling them to repentance. They repented not. And we shall see it gets even worse. But who are supposed to be giving heed to these things? The churches in Asia are not written to parliaments. These things are not written to legislators. They're written to the churches. It's the people of God who must give heed to these solemn matters. But we shall leave it there and make God enable us to lay hold of that solemn reality. God is a consistent God and there's no escaping his justice in any generation or at any point in history. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we give thee thanks that we have thy word in a dark day. Make thy word to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And may each of us and in our families, may we be earnestly praying, may fathers and parents be earnestly praying that their children and their homes and their families would be protected from the fearful, godless, and satanic influences that are everywhere in our modern society. That thy judgments are abroad in the earth. Bring us, we pray, to humble ourselves, repentance before thee. Accept us and pardon us now for Christ's sake. Amen.